Chapter forty nine of the Emancipation of South America by Bartolome Mitre. Translated by William Pilling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Natter. Junin Ayacucho, eighteen twenty three to eighteen twenty four. The daydreams of men often mould the course of their lives. The daydream of Bolivar was the unification of South America. It was in pursuance of this dream that he created a great military power and carried his arms in triumph over half the continent. His first step was the creation of Colombia. Then he dreamed of a South American confederation, ruled by an international assembly after the manner of the Achaean League of ancient Greece, and at last of a monocracy under the protection of Colombian bayonets. Then the dream became delirium. In the treaties with Chile and Peru, forming an alliance offensive and defensive, it was stipulated by Bolivar, quote, that an assembly should be convened of the American states, composed of plenipotentiaries, with the object of establishing, on a solid basis, intimate relations between each and all of them, which may serve as a council when great questions arise, as a point of contact in common danger, as an interpreter of treaties in case of a misunderstanding, and as an arbitrator and conciliator in disputes and difficulties. End quote. On the field of diplomacy, the liberator of Colombia came for the first time in contact with Don Bernardino Rivadavia, the highest personification of the liberalism of South America. One was at the head of four great states, the other was the constitutional minister of a province. Bolivar aspired to the laurel crown of an American Caesar, Rivadavia to that of a Pacific liberator. Rivadavia was at this time the soul of the provinces of La Plata, which were separated by political shipwreck. The Argentine Republic, exhausted by her great struggle for the independence of America, and prostrated by civil conflict, took no more part in the Continental War, but her soldiers still fought for her in far-off lands, her integral parts in spite of separation had still cohesion and sought reunion a centre of attraction was wanting to this constellation of fourteen wandering stars buenos aires provided that centre rivadavia welded this province into a state which became the organic cell of national life on the small theatre of a province the representative system of a republic was seen for the first time at work in south america these institutions which were then a novelty in the world except in the united states and partially in england showed to the peoples of south america what the republican system was from buenos aires they spread over the entire continent the argentine republic was then threatened with the war which broke out two years later the new empire of brazil had occupied by force the banda oriental which was one of the united provinces the government of buenos aires inspired by rivadavia faced the question with all its consequences in these circumstances in january eighteen twenty three don joaquin mosquera arrived in buenos aires as a minister plenipotentiary of colombia rivadavia was provisionally in charge of the government he rejected at once the idea of a congress with power to decide international disputes the treaty was reduced to a defensive alliance in support of their independence from Spanish or from any other foreign domination. As Rivadavia explained to the legislature, quote, the treaty proposed by Colombia did not fulfill the requisite conditions, since it only recognized the existence of governments and not their legitimacy. End quote. 
The idea of Rivadavia was to complete the triumph of the revolution by a peaceful understanding with the mother country, in which all the late colonies should unite. When King Ferdinand, in 1820, sent a royal commission to the River Plate with the object of quote, putting an end to differences existing between members of the same family, end quote, the government of Buenos Aires replied that it could listen to no proposition which was not based upon the recognition of independence, which declaration served as a precedent. The treaty with Colombia was signed on the 8th of March, 1823, was ratified by the government of Colombia on the 10th of June, 1824, and by the Argentine Congress on the 7th of June, 1825. Almost simultaneously with Mosquera, there arrived in Buenos Aires two new commissioners from the King of Spain. The Spanish Cortés, reinstalled at Cadiz in 1820, was composed of liberals, who saw that these ancient colonies could not be subjected by force, and attempted to settle the question by negotiation. These commissioners brought no proper credentials, but were simply appointed by the King, under liberal pressure, to listen to proposals and to arrange provisional treaties of commerce. Their real object was to divide the different republics which were at war with Spain. Buenos Aires was looked upon as the centre of the revolutionary spirit. The commissioners were instructed to recognise the independence of the United Provinces, and so to separate them from Peru and Colombia. Rivadavia drew up a resolution which was sanctioned at once by the legislature. Quote, government shall negotiate no treaties of neutrality of peace nor of commerce with spain until after the cessation of war in all the new states of the american continent and not until after the recognition of their independence End quote. on this basis an arrangement was drawn up in which a suspension of hostilities for eighteen months was stipulated during which time the province of buenos aires should negotiate the acquiescence of the other american governments meantime commercial relations were re-established with spain contraband of war being accepted but it was an illusion on the part of rivadavia to hope that the question with spain could be settled by any other mode than by arms there was yet a further stipulation as france had voted twenty millions of dollars in aid of the restoration of absolutism in spain in agreement with the holy alliance from which england was already separated the government of buenos aires was authorized to negotiate for an equal sum among the states of america quote, to uphold the representative system in spain end quote. don felix alzaga was with this object appointed plenipotentiary to the governments of chile peru and colombia at the same time general las eras was sent as a commissioner to the royalist authorities in peru to arrange an armistice with them in conjunction with general arenales who was at that time in command on the northern frontier buenos aires in spite of the dangers which surrounded her thus performed her duty to her sister states boldly confronting the alliance of the absolute kings and thereby gained the goodwill of england but the convention was rejected in Chile through the intervention of the Colombian minister. Alzaga then went on to Peru and presented it to both presidents, to Torre Tagle and to Riva Aguero. The first made use of it to open a traitorous correspondence with the royalists. The other used it as a plea for arranging an armistice of his own and for sending back the Colombian auxiliaries. 
but, strange to say, it was accepted by Bolívar as a way out of his difficulties, he merely stipulating that it should, first of all, be ratified by the Spaniards. His object was to gain time for the arrival of reinforcements from Colombia. At the beginning of 1824, the situation of the Patriots in Peru was very precarious. The Royalists had 18,000 men, flushed with recent victories. The Patriots had only half that number. At this juncture an event happened which had for a time most disastrous effects upon the fortunes of Peru. Just as the Spaniards were making a last effort to regain the dominion of the Pacific, the Patriots lost the fortress of Callao, while, almost simultaneously, President Torre Tagle passed over to the Royalists, taking with him a part of the national forces, and the Spaniards reoccupied Lima. The Argentine contingent was very discontented. The Peruvians were jealous of them and treated them as foreigners, tolerated only on account of their services. They were badly clothed and fed. Their pay was both irregular and insufficient. The government, by whose authority they had become an army, no longer existed. The general to whom they owed their existence had deserted them. In March 1823 they had applied for protection to the government of Buenos Aires and had been adopted by the province, then the only representative of the nation. Bolivar commenced to prepare for offensive operations by concentrating his forces at Pativilca, about 140 miles to the north of Lima and withdrawing most of the Colombian garrison from Callao, supplied their place with the Rio de la Plata regiment and the 11th battalion of the Andes, putting the whole garrison under command of General Alvarado. On the night of the 4th of February, 1824, the rank and file of the garrison mutinied under two Argentine sergeants named Moyano and Oliva and imprisoned their officers. Their first demands were for $100,000 as arrears of pay, and that they should be sent back to their own country. While government hesitated to accede to these terms, the spirit of insubordination gained strength among the soldiery. Their own leaders could not prevent excesses. Among other Spanish prisoners in the dungeons was a colonel Casariego, whom Oliva had known in Chile. The two sergeants took counsel with him, and by his advice released the Spanish prisoners and put their own officers in the dungeons. He then persuaded them that their situation was desperate, and that their only chance of safety lay in embracing the royalist cause and hoisting the Spanish flag. The troops were reorganized and placed under Spanish officers. Moyano was made a colonel, and Oliva a lieutenant colonel. All sergeants and corporals were promoted, and a messenger was sent to Canterac, placing the fortress at his disposal. On the 7th of February, the flag of Spain was raised on one of the towers. A Negro soldier of the Rio de la Plata regiment, a native of Buenos Aires, known by the nickname of Falucho, refused to mount guard over the flag against which he had so often fought. He broke his musket against the flagstaff and was shot, shouting, Viva Buenos Aires! The mounted grenadiers who were encamped in the valley of Cañete mutinied also, and marched to join their comrades at Callao on the 14th of February, but when they saw the Spanish flag flying over the walls, they released their officers. One hundred and twenty of them returned to their allegiance, and represented their country in the liberating armies to the end of the war. Thus, by mutiny and by treachery, was dissolved the celebrated army of the Andes. 
As soon as Canterac heard of the mutiny at Callao, he sent a strong division under Monet from the Highlands, which joined the division of Rodil in the valley of Ica and marched on Lima. Torre Tagle, who with his Minister of War was in secret correspondence with the Royalists, joined them with some Peruvian troops and issued a proclamation against Bolivar. The Royalists were now masters of the Highlands and of all the centre and south of Peru, and aimed at the dominion of the sea as well. A part of the Peruvian squadron was stationed at Callao. Admiral Guise, with the Protector frigate and four armed boats, entered the port under the fire of the forts, boarded the frigate Guayas, formerly Vengantha, and burned her, as also the Santa Rosa and some merchant vessels, on the 25th of February. The brig of war Balcarce was the only vessel saved, but the Royalists were expecting two Spanish frigates. Bolivar issued terrible decrees for the evacuation of Lima, which were not obeyed, but on the 10th of February Congress appointed him dictator. Monet occupied Lima without resistance, but did not remain there. He left Rodil in command at Callao and returned to the highlands, taking the officers of the former garrison with him as prisoners. These officers, 160 in number, were forced to march on foot up the mountain passes to Jauja. On the third night, as they were passing through a narrow defile, two of them, by preconcerted arrangement, slipped into a ditch where they could not be seen, the two who were next then concealing their retreat, so that the evasion was not discovered till they reached the next halt. Monet ordered two of the prisoners to be shot in place of those who had escaped. They were all drawn up in line by General Camba and told to draw lots, which were presented to them in a helmet. Several lots had been drawn blank, when two officers stepped forward, saying that they were the men who had concealed the escape of the fugitives. With one exception, all the other officers called for the drawing to go on, but Camba decided that these two should pay the forfeit of their lives, and they were shot. One of them, Domingo Millan, was a native of Tucuman and of middle age. He drew out from the lining of his uniform coat the medals of Tucuman and Salta, pinned them on his breast, and died shouting, Viva la Patria! The other, Manuel Prudon, was a native of Buenos Aires, and only twenty-four years of age. He died with the calmness of a martyr, shouting, Viva Buenos Aires! Bolivar had fallen dangerously ill at his headquarters at Pativilca. For six days he lay unconscious. When he was yet in the first stage of convalescence, news reached him of the mutiny of Callao and of the treason of Torre Tagle. Mosquera went to visit him and found him seated in a rocking chair in the orchard, his head tied up in a white handkerchief. He was deadly pale and his voice was hollow with weakness. "'What do you think of doing now?' asked Mosquera. "'Of triumphing,' replied he undauntedly. Misfortune only seemed to strengthen his spirits. He retreated with seven thousand men to Trujillo, made the southern provinces of Colombia his base of operations, and wrote to Vice-President Santander asking for reinforcements, quote, The interests of all America are at stake, nothing must be trusted to probabilities, still less to chance or fortune, end quote. On the 11th of May, 1824, Congress authorized a levy of 50,000 men, and 3,000 men were sent to join him at once. Before the enemy suspected that he was about to move, he had concentrated his army at the foot of the northern Cordillera, in three divisions of infantry under Cordoba, Lara, and Lamar, and one of cavalry under Necochea. 
Sucre was chief of the staff. At this time Olañeta, who was in Upper Peru with 4,000 men, refused any longer to obey the orders of the Viceroy. He had heard from Buenos Aires that, by the help of France, Ferdinand had abolished the Constitution of 1820 and was once more an absolute king. La Serna sent Valdez against him, and some severe fighting took place between them, in which Valdez took the advantage when he was recalled by the Viceroy. Bolivar took advantage of the absence of Valdez to commence operations, and marched on Jauja by the road which had twice led Arenales to victory, covering his advance by a cloud of Peruvian guerillas, under whose protection Sucre marked out the daily route of the army and provided supplies. Bolivar ascended the range at its highest point in the direction of Pasco, hoping to surprise the enemy, and on the 2nd of August passed 9,000 men in review about 25 miles from that city, on which occasion he was accompanied by O'Higgins and by Monteagudo, who had returned from exile. On the 4th, Miller, who had been detached with a party of cavalry, brought word that Canterac was advancing from Jauja with all his army. To the south of Pasco, at the headwaters of the Rio Grande, commences the great lake of Reyes, which lies between the two ranges of the Cordillera, and occupies all the low ground as far as the entrance of the valley of Jauja. On its eastern bank there runs a level road, on the western bank is another which leads to Hunin, and is much rougher. At the southern extremity of the lake lies the plain of Hunin, broken by numerous hillocks, and cut up by streams and marshes filled by the overflow from the lake. On the 1st of August, Canterac had advanced with his cavalry along the eastern road to reconnoitre, and learned to his surprise that Bolivar was already on the other side of the lake. He retreated rapidly, and rejoined his infantry on the 5th of August. On the 6th, at two o'clock in the afternoon, he found himself face to face with the Patriot army on the plain of Hunin. Their infantry held the heights beyond, while their cavalry appeared about to charge him. Bolivar had marched along the eastern slopes of the western range, halting only in strong positions, showing a cautiousness which was not usual with him. On seeing the royalist army, he sent Necochea in front with nine hundred horse. The ground was so contracted by a hill on one side and by a marsh on the other, that at five o'clock Necochea had only two squadrons of Colombian horse on the plain, when he was attacked by the whole of the royalist cavalry, thirteen hundred strong, led by Canterac in person. The Colombian lancers received the charge with great steadiness, but were driven back upon their supports, who were still entangled in the defile. The royalist horse, greatly disordered by their rapid advance, entered the defile with the fugitives. Necochea, pierced by seven lance wounds, was trampled underfoot and made prisoner. Colonel Suarez, with the first squadron of Peruvian hussars, had drawn his men into an angle of the marsh, and, letting the route pass by, charged the pursuers in the rear. The fugitives were rallied by Miller, who led them again to the charge, and drove the royalists from the field. In forty-five minutes the whole affair was over, and not a shot was fired. The royalists lost two hundred and fifty killed by lance and sabre. The patriots lost one hundred and fifty, between killed and wounded, and rescued Necochea. The fugitives took shelter under the fire of their infantry, which at once retreated. Such was the celebrated action of Hunin, which broke the prestige of the royalist army and prepared the way for the final triumph. 
Bolívar, who had seen the rout of the first squadrons, thought he had lost his cavalry, and returned to the infantry, who were a league behind. He only learned the defeat of the enemy from a pencil note sent him by Miller after sundown. The hussars who did such good service were afterwards styled the hussars of Hunin in reward for their gallant behaviour. Canterac, who was greatly disheartened by their disaster, which was chiefly the result of his own precipitate conduct in charging without a reserve over ground of which he knew nothing, evacuated the valley of Jauja, and retreated so rapidly that in two days he was more than a hundred miles from the scene of the action, and his infantry was quite worn out, but he did not stop until he had crossed the Apurimac more than five hundred miles from hunin and lost between two thousand and three thousand men by desertion on the way la serna sent him a reinforcement of fifteen hundred men and recalled valdez to cusco canterac had fled from his own shadow for he was not pursued bolivar rested for three days on the field of battle took ten days to occupy the valley of jauja and remained nearly a month at huamanga in september he crossed the river pampas an affluent of the apurimac and threatened cuzco from the sources of that river his right flank being covered by a spur from the cordillera but did not consider himself strong enough to attempt anything more now that the rainy season was at hand he also learned that a loan projected by san martin had been successfully launched in london and that a million dollars were expected immediately leaving sucre in command he returned to lima in october before leaving he received notice that on the twenty eighth of july the congress of colombia had abrogated the law conferring extraordinary powers upon him which he might no longer exercise now that he was in a foreign country this was the first sign of parliamentary resistance to his autocratic tendencies the liberals now formed a powerful party in congress under the leadership of vice-president santander who thought more of the interests of new granada than of those of the republic at large bolivar received the blow with dignity comprehending that he had brought it upon himself by taking charge of the government of a foreign state and notified sucre that he would only interfere in military operations as president of peru sucre who was not ambitious and was devoted to bolivar advised him to pay no attention to the new law and declared that he himself would have no direct communication with the government of colombia looking to bolivar alone for orders both kept their promises bolivar leaving complete liberty of action to sucre who followed his instruction except in the conduct of military operation in which he knew that his talents were superior to those of the liberator bolivar again established his headquarters at pativilca but found matters much changed for the worse the arrival of the spanish ship of the line asia and of the twenty-gun brig achilles had given the naval preponderance to the royalists these ships were joined by a corvette and a brig from chiloe and there was one brig already at callao which guise had failed to capture after an exchange of shots with the spaniards guise with the peruvian squadron was forced to seek shelter at guayaquil a detachment of the patriot army had been defeated near lima chile remained inactive but bolivar still undaunted collected such forces as he could assemble at pativilca and urgently requested a further reinforcement of six thousand men from colombia in aid of sucre whose position was very precarious bolivar also returned to his old project of an american congress summoning it to meet on the seventh of december at panama 
as the most central point for all the world, and addressed circulars to that effect to the governments of Mexico, Colombia, Guatemala, Buenos Aires, Chile, Brazil, and later on to the United States. While occupied in these dreams, he heard that the Royalists had advanced from Cuzco, manoeuvring to cut off the retreat of Sucre. Then there was silence. Eight days afterwards, the fate of America was decided at Ayacucho. Upon one point only, Bolivar and Sucre were not agreed. Bolivar had left instructions with Sucre to keep his army together at all risks, but he, thinking his position a dangerous one, spread his troops over the whole district, and advanced himself with a light division as far as Mamara on the road to Cusco, and from there sent Miller on with the grenadiers to reconnoitre. When Bolivar heard of these manoeuvres, he wrote to Sucre, impressing upon the maxim that, quote, Union is strength. You expose yourself to the loss of a battle for the sake of occupying some more leagues of territory. The liberty of Peru will not be won by occupying land, but by a victory upon it. End quote. Sucre replied, saying that he would obey orders, but had only just sent off the letter when he received advice from Miller that the enemy was advancing en masse, and only twenty-five miles distant. His army was spread over an extent of ninety miles. Before he could concentrate, the royalists were in his rear. As he retreated, he received a further dispatch from Bolivar, authorizing him to fight if he thought it necessary. Sucre had underestimated the strength of the royalists. By calling in the outlying divisions, La Serna had, on the 24th of October, assembled 1,000 men in three divisions of infantry under Canterac, Valdez, and Monet, and one of cavalry, which he commanded himself with ten guns. Sucre had only 7,000 men and two guns. La Serna manoeuvred to cut off Sucre from his base, moving in a semicircle, of which the patriots held the centre. Sucre was thus enabled to concentrate his forces and choose for himself the field of battle. He retreated to Amanga, but on the 24th of November, at the river Pampas, he found that the enemy, by forced marches, was there before him. The river lay between them. Three days were spent in manoeuvres, after which Sucre crossed the river, but on the 2nd of December found the heights of Matara in his front already occupied by the royalists. Wheeling rapidly to his right, he passed by a gorge towards the valley of Acrocos, but his rear guard under Lara was overtaken in the pass by Valdez. One Colombian battalion was cut to pieces, and two more were dispersed with the loss of a gun on the 3rd of December but the further advance of the royalists was checked by the main body stationed on the heights beyond the two armies encamped for the night with the gorge between them the next day sucre gained the valley of acrocos and offered battle but la serna anxious to cut him off from jauja marched round the left flank of the patriots and again gained their rear cutting all the bridges and closing the defiles to prevent their retreat the people of the valleys rose in favour of the royalists. A patriot column, advancing from Jauja to join Sucre, was driven back. His sick were killed in the hospitals, and he had lost six hundred men in the retreat. For him it was now victory or death. He drew up his army in the valley of Ayacucho, his flanks resting on the mountain ranges to the east and to the west, while the royalists occupied the heights in front. Cordoba commanded on the right miller in the centre and lamar on the left 
and a reserve of three battalions was commanded by Lara. On the morning of Thursday, the 9th of December, 1824, the sun rose gloriously over the peaks of the eastern cordillera. Sucre galloped from end to end of his line, telling his men that on their valour that day hung the destinies of South America. At nine in the morning the royalists descended from the heights to the attack. At ten o'clock they debouched upon the plain, and the left and centre advanced in mass, led by the viceroy himself. The royalist right, under Valdez, was the first to engage, and drove in the patriot skirmishers, but the Peruvian infantry stood firm, and a battalion of Colombians was sent to aid them. Sucre then ordered Cordova to charge with the right wing, supported by Miller's cavalry. The young general, who was only twenty-five years of age, advanced rapidly in two parallel columns, and threw himself with great impetuosity upon the royalist centre. Eight squadrons of royalist cavalry who charged him were driven back by the Colombian horse under Silva. Monet, whose division had not yet been engaged, came to the assistance of the left centre, but was attacked by the reserve under Lara and driven back in confusion. Three more squadrons were then thrown forward and were exterminated by the Colombian lancers. La Serna strove in vain to rally his disordered soldiery. He was borne from his horse with six wounds and made prisoner with more than one thousand of his men. Meantime, Valdez had turned the left flank of the Patriots, and the Peruvian division, under Lamar, began to give way, when the Colombian battalion came to their assistance, followed by the Peruvian hussars and the Argentine grenadiers, led by Miller, who charged with such fury that the Royalist infantry were thrown into confusion, and all the guns were captured. It was one o'clock. Valdez, in despair, sat down on a rock, waiting for death, but his officers forced him away, back to the heights, where many of the royalist generals were already assembled, with such troops as they could collect. Canterac took the command, and capitulated with Sucre. The war of independence was at an end. Emancipation was secured. In the words of a poet, quote, We passed one thousand years in one hour at Ayacucho. End quote. Ayacucho is known in America as the Battle of the Generals. Fourteen Spanish generals, with all their subordinate officers, gave up their swords that day. The Royalists lost 1,400 killed and 700 wounded, the Patriots 300 killed and 600 wounded. One-fourth of all who entered into action were placed hors de combat. Ayacucho crowned the joint work of San Martin and Bolivar. The victories of Chacabuco and Maipo were united to those of Boyacá and Carabobo with the golden link forged at Ayacucho by the genius of Sucre. End of chapter 49